Pastor Sherry asked if I could say something to you all while they're all the way at annual conference. I reminded her that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. <laughs> Nevertheless, here we are. So let's start with a prayer then, thanks. Father God, your voice, your power, your wisdom, your calming presence be among us. And if it's your message that will be heard here today, then we are blessed. Amen. I'll start with a small confession. While my wife and I were raising children, we were growing up, we lived in three houses. And all of them had what we call a living room. Why we call it a living room, I don't know, because we didn't live in it. It was a room with nice furniture and lots of pictures on the wall. And we might sit in there with guests that we didn't know very well. Perhaps in the old days they would have called that like a reception room or a parlor or something like that. And the nice thing about it is that it rarely needed dusting or vacuuming. And sometimes I would go in there when I was trying to get away from people. But when we had good friends over to visit, or for that matter, when we went over to friends... Uh, we tended to hang out someplace else. Guess where? The kitchen. Exactly, the kitchen. And that's true for just about everybody. Back when the kids were little, we would spend Sunday evenings with our friends, the Lutzes, and we would alternate whose house we would congregate at. One week it was us, the next week it was them, back again. And we usually watched a movie on the blanket on the floor, and we would eat popcorn and, and cheese sticks and apples. And, uh, and it was my job to go to the grocery store beforehand and bring something unusual like kumquats or dragon fruit or Pakistani candy that would challenge the kids' courage. Um, but before the blanket and after, it was all about the conversation in the kitchen and preparing the food together or, or the cleaning up afterwards. I, I knew where their forks were they knew where our mustard is. And uh, there were half-finished projects all over the place, and we were all up in each other's business. There was stuff that needed done, there were kids underfoot, and there were multiple conversations going on at once. And that's the way it should be among friends. you agree? So our scripture, core scripture today is from the 23rd Psalm, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And to me, this scripture is all about that community in the kitchen. It tells us about how God sustains us and feeds us and makes us feel comfortable. You notice that he doesn't offer a coaster for iced tea so that it doesn't leave a ring on the furniture. Instead, what does he do? He pours the cup until it overflows. Oh, I'm sorry, was that my bad? No, don't worry about it, it's fine, it's fine. He anoints you until you're relaxed and at ease. This kind of comfort actually made an impact on us that we tended to even treat our more formal guests this way. My, my father, he lived um, next to a tennis court and, uh, in the next state, and he would send us big boxes full of tennis balls, hundreds of tennis balls. 
And my kids loved a game where they'd be up at the top of the stairs with a big box of tennis balls, and we would invite our guest to lay down on the floor with their head against the bottom step like this. And then they would tip the box over, and there would be this thunderous herd of tennis balls coming, pounding down the stairs, bang, 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 on top of the guests. And I have to admit that when my boss came to visit our house for the first time, this is what we did. (laughs) And it was sort of amazing to hear a grown man giggle. I think I should also tell you that our time with the Lutzes in Arlington was also about the time that Lois and I returned to the church. And I surprised myself, actually, by finding something really powerful and lasting and important in the church rather than it being just something that we did on Sundays. But sitting in the pews and listening quietly, enjoying the music, it struck me how much this felt like sitting in a living room. And over the years, it has kind of cemented in my head that I strive to be part of a church that feels more like a kitchen than a living room. I mean, we want to make visitors feel welcome and not uncomfortable in any way here, but I confess that I have a very strong urge when I talk to a visitor to say, so glad to meet you. Would you mind holding this crying child? (laughs) Or we're so glad that you came to uh, enjoy dinner with us here at the church. Would you mind drying the dishes? I know that whenever I visit somebody who is hosting a little get-together, I feel a lot better if I'm allowed to cover the dishes with saran wrap and put them in the fridge. I feel both honored and engaged. I feel like I'm in the company of friends. And to be completely honest with you, the last thing I'd like a visitor or a new member to feel is that they're sitting in someone's living room where nobody is completely relaxed. What I want a visitor to see is how full our lives are here, how many unfinished projects there are laying around that could use a little help, how many opportunities there are to do a simple thing to lend a hand, and how much open conversation there is. Yes, this is God's house, and we are here to approach him with some reverence and deference. But let me ask you this. If there is a a kid up front, loose, whirling and dancing to the music that's being played, do you think God has a scowl on his face? Let me ask you another thing. Does he want you here as you would present yourselves? Or does he want you here exactly as you are? I believe we owe it to people when they come visit us that they feel at home. Not as a guest in someone's home. At home. The difference is critical. There's another psalm a little later that I think captures this. Is there anyone around to save Israel? God turns life around. Turn around Jacob, skips rope. Turn around Israel, sings laughter. You have that picture in your mind of how joyous and relaxed people are in God's presence? As for me, and maybe this is just me, if my Lord and Savior appeared in the flesh to us right now, I think I would probably kiss him. I think I would probably cry. I know I would thank him for everything he did in my life to restore me and to help uh, pull me from my messes. But I think I would also invite him to lay down at the bottom of the stairs while my kids gathered at the top and tipped a 
big box of tennis balls. I'm not sure how you react to that, but I would surely make the invitation. You know, and I'm not the only one. I think uh, Kevin Gurley has hosted several sessions in our church about the Beyond Walls message. And one of the things he can tell you about is pub churches. You heard me, pub churches. This is really taking off in Britain where people are looking for a Christian community where community feels like community. It's not Christianity people have problems with, you see. It's churches. And now we can start to ask ourselves why that's true. And while you're thinking about that, consider visiting one of the pub churches in Austin just to see, and then come back to Bethany and see if there's some element that would be of value here. Here's a comment from the front door pub church in town that describes what they're after. We hope that at its best, pub church will encourage those who attend to feel confident about voicing opinions in hope of attaining not reason or excellence, but truth and empathy through the eyes of the other. That's a fascinating statement. And this gets to the other thing that I wanted to talk with you about today. One of the things that I really cherish about our Sunday school class is that we agree on very little. (laughs) What became clear pretty quickly is, is that one, we love and respect each other enormously, and two, we don't think at all alike. And that's a good thing. First of all, it makes for an interesting and eye-opening discussion. I know I have uh, many strong opinions about many things, but it's good to have somebody offer a counterpoint, if only to help me think more clearly about what I truly believe. And secondly, I'm also uh, greatly surprised to discover that the assumptions that I have made about somebody else are just completely wrong. And when they surprise me, then, of course, I get to know them better. Third, and this is probably the most important thing at all, of all, loving each other has nothing to do with agreeing with each other. I want to emphasize that. Loving each other has nothing to do with agreeing with each other. If there's one disease that social media today is most guilty of, it's that we've forgotten how to converse politely with people who don't agree with us. If you're on Facebook, you friend the people that are like you and you unfriend the ones that say things that you don't like. People who follow each other on Twitter and Instagram usually are posting about the same kinds of things. And if you are going to turn to your left or to your right, right here in this worship center and ask yourselves whether those people next to you think the same way that you do about the important things, maybe you'd assume that they do, at least about the important things. And you'd almost certainly be wrong. There's a beautiful scripture in 1 Corinthians. You will notice that the variety of bodies is stunning. Just as there are different kinds of seeds, there are different kinds of bodies. Humans, animals, birds, fish. Each unprecedented in its form. You get a hint at the diversity of resurrection glory by looking at the diversity of bodies not only on earth but in the sky, sun, moon, stars. All of these varieties of beauty and brightness. And we're only looking at the pre-resurrection seeds. Who can imagine what the resurrection plants will be like? This is a celebration of enormous differences. 
the grandeur of variety. If you spend a half an hour talking with the people next to you or in front of you or behind you, sharing views on things that are really important to you, like your position on capital punishment or gun control or same-sex marriage or what kinds of people we want to let immigrate or whether abortion is a bad thing or whether Muslims are a threat to Christianity or whether drug addicts should be jailed or hospitalized, or any of a dozen other subjects that we all feel passionately about. If you talk to your neighbors about any of those things, you'd probably be surprised to discover how differently they think than you thought they would. Or maybe you already know that your neighbors here in church do not agree with you on those things, and so you've decided just not to talk about those things. You know how it is. You know, there are some people that you generally like, and there are some things, like Jesus Christ, that you share in common. But there's other things that you just don't bring up to those people because you can't talk with them about it, right? The reality is that there are lots of subjects we just don't discuss with others in church. The pitfall of not talking about it is that we either assume that we must generally think alike, which is wrong, or we just choose not to acknowledge the differences. And part of the reason we don't talk about these things is we don't want to cause a rift among ourselves. We don't want the church to be divisive. We don't want people to leave because they don't feel like they're uh, not around like-minded people. And so instead we pretend we are like-minded people. So I'm standing here today to challenge us to discover and explore an idea. I'd like for us to actively embrace our diversity. This is actually easy to say until we really dive into it, into the task of talking about important subjects, and then we discover how diverse we really are. We ain't going to be able to embrace diversity until we meet that diversity face to face. This sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? I mean, what if I have a falling out with somebody here that I've had a long-term relationship with for years just because of a subject that's not central to our common faith? I want to go back to the 23rd Psalm here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know, when I first learned this scripture, I had this mental image of sitting down at a big table of food while all my enemies were left to stand and watch me eat. That was probably not the right way to read that. What God was speaking into David's heart is that God sets a table for me to sit with my enemies. Or to make this really hit home for me, the context I read was, you prepare a table for my enemies in the presence of me. That changed my whole perspective on this psalm. I am speaking an assurance that I believe with all my heart. Our love for each other is stronger than any disagreement. Amen. Say it again. Our love for each other is stronger than any disagreement. I believe with all my heart that it is good medicine as us for a congregation to discover that passionate disagreement 
over diverse, uh, over diverse opinions, and that that does not need to produce fracture in our church. And in fact, exactly the opposite will happen. We will learn that we can disagree with love and respect and embrace, not gloss over those differences. You know, there was a story on a TV show called 60 Minutes that caught my eye. Um, the reporter was Oprah Winfrey. Some of you may have seen this story. And the premise of the story was to go to Michigan, a little town in Michigan, just after the presidential election. And they got together 14 people who didn't know each other in this little town, seven of whom were on one side of the political fence and seven who were on the other side of the political fence. And they just sort of sat down and talked with each other. The discussion was very polarized and passionately extreme on both sides. And then 60 Minutes left, and a funny thing happened. Those 14 people decided to stay connected. They formed an online discussion group where they continued to argue and discuss those topics. But they also met to hang out with each other. They went bowling. They had meals together. They took dance lessons together. They got to know each other and they became friends. Friends. And then 60 Minutes came back about six months later and sat them around the table again and asked them whether they still felt the same way. And they did. They were just as divided as they were before. They had not changed their political positions one bit. And if anything, they were even more articulate and passionate in their positions. But there was one little change in the conversation, and this slammed home for me. Because you see, they respected and they liked each other. They were friends. They knew the other's thinking, which did not change their own thinking. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And that, my friend, is God's voice. This is God saying, what counts is the love. This is God saying, and I want you to close your eyes for a minute and imagine God speaking this to you. I made you different. I made you all to have different thoughts and convictions. I do not want you to bury those differences. I want you to bring those differences up to the light so that everyone can see them. Don't turn your eyes away from those differences. Look at them and then acknowledge them. Speak them out loud. And then, then celebrate them. Celebrate the fact that the tapestry is woven with more than one color and more than one pattern. And through it all, remember that you love each other, even as you talk openly about those differences. Because it is the love, my love and you, that binds the various threads of this tapestry together. Do not separate red threads from blue threads, but instead weave them together. You are the tapestry, but only if you stay bound to each other. Remember this always. Now open your eyes and look around. There's a beautiful scripture in Philippians that has that message. Meanwhile, live in such a way that you are a credit to the message of Christ and remember what the message of Christ is. Let nothing in your conduct hang on whether I come or not. Your conduct must be the same whether I show up to see things for myself or hear of it from a distance. Stand united, singular in vision, contending for people's trust in the message, the good news, not flinching or dodging in the slightest before the opposition. Your courage and unity 
will show them what they're up against. Defeat for them, victory for you, and both because of God. There's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There is also suffering for him, and the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. You're involved in the same kind of struggle you saw me go through, on which you are now getting an updated report in this letter. I'd like to invent a word for this. One that uh, I've had some fun made of. Unidiversity. Unidiversity, it's the encapsulation of diversity inside of unity. I think this is a good word for us to learn and practice. I think there's only one way that we can learn to live in unidiversity, and that's to talk about it. I think it's time we sat down with each other and asked us, you know, asked each other one-on-one, so what is your position on gun control? What's your opinion of same-sex marriage? What are your thoughts about whether murderers can be forgiven? So try this with your small groups. Try it in your Sunday school classes. What we will gain from this are two really important things. We will come to know on a real person-to-person basis what our differences are, refusing to leave them unspoken. Second, we will learn that those differences will not and cannot divide us because God made us in unity and in diversity. Unidiversity is our birthright and his glory. You know, there's a decision in the United Methodist Church that's, that we're all going to face soon about whether same-sex marriages and gay clergy will or will not be supported by the church. I'm sure this came up in conversation down in Corpus Christi the last few days. And I'm deliberately not telling you my stance on this position, even though I encourage you to approach me one-on-one as a friend and as a brother and ask me about it, and I'll tell you what my position is, and then I'll ask you about yours. I'm fascinated by the fact that there's another Methodist church in town that has taken a firm stand on this position that they will marry no one in their church unless they can marry anyone. And that stance is not so much of an interest to me as how they got there. What was the conversation like in that church before they got to that point? How did they talk to each other about it? People who knew each other and loved each other and disagreed on the issue. It was and is by no means unanimous. People all over the world are fretting that the Methodist Church may become divided on this issue, may split apart. And frankly, my question is, is why? Why should that happen? Is our love not strong enough that we can talk these things through and embrace our differences? Don't we at Bethany know the beauty of unidiversity? I think we do. I have faith that we do. And above all, I have faith in a God whose love is greater than our differences and who built us this way on purpose. On purpose. Let's pray. Father God, 
We thank you for the enormous complexity of you and how you made things. We also thank you for the great comfort that you lay in front of us that we can all sit at the same table together, all have the same communion. Thank you, Lord, for your abundant graces and the way that you anoint us and make us feel comfortable, even in the midst of all of those enormous differences. Bless you, for we are blessed. Amen. If there are those